Hi, Blooms and Barnacles listeners. This is Kelly. Normally, I like to keep Blooms and Barnacles free of any discussion of current events, but I feel like we need to make an exception this time. Normally, we ask listeners for a donation at the top of the show, but because of the current COVID-19 crisis has left so many people uncertain about their current and future income, we're planning to leave that particular call to action off the intro to our show and coming episodes. If you can donate, we do appreciate it, but we don't want anyone to feel pressured. This particular episode we recorded a while back, and I didn't want to remove the thank yous that are in that portion of the show because we are very thankful to our supporters. Dermot and I want to thank everyone for their support of our show. It's really cool that we get to have this fun hobby because of you guys. Please take care of yourself and your loved ones during this difficult time. We do plan to keep recording, writing, and drawing to help you keep your mind active while you're social distancing. Once again, thank you so much for your support. Here's the episode. Podcast where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. What's good with you today, Dermot? Not everything, really. Yeah, yeah. All's well. All right. Uh, let's get this underway. Uh, this is a special episode because I'm going to make Dermot read French today. Uh, mm-hmm. Dermot doesn't read French very mm-hmm. well, I think. Mm-hmm. So apologies to any francophone. Yeah, so I guess a content warning for poorly pronounced French in this episode. Mm-hmm. The, the Irish are the best at doing that. <laughs> oh, uh, I would say give uh, Midwestern Americans their place, their their due when it yeah. comes to that. Remember there's a movie with Peter Ustinov where he was saying to somebody, Merky, be a coop. I thought that's about as bad as it gets. Uh, I grew up near a town called, there's a nearby town spelled M-A-R-S-E-I-L-E-S. Mm-hmm. That is pronounced Marseilles. And if you pronounce it, any other way, we will mock you behind your back. Mm, East Coast elitist. No, Chicago people. Not worried about the East Coast. Oh, okay. <laughs> Chicago people. <laughs> Much bigger and more immediate concern. So, uh, okay. Uh, there's a new post up on the Blooms and Barnacles blog. You can find us at bloomsandbarnacles.com. It's called Agendat Natayim. Uh, also poorly pronounced Hebrew in this episode. So, Dermot, tell us a little bit about that post. Yeah, it's a, a kind of a saucy uh, drawing I did for that one. Well, tell us about the post, the post. and then we'll talk about the drawing. Yeah, the uh, the post is about uh, Leopold Bloom's first encounter with a little Zionist pamphlet when he's getting uh, his meat product because he's not a very kosher Jew. He's buying pork kidneys is mm-hmm. the organ from a Jewish butcher who's mm-hmm. also selling pork sausages and pork bits so he's not a very observant Jew either mm-hmm. and sitting on the table we have some pamphlets selling land in Palestine mm-hmm. you said the image was saucy saucy yes well you put the idea in my head because you told me that there was this potentially phallic symbolism of Leopold watching the young woman or the maid the, the, the kind of Chunky maid buying sausages. I believe the term I used was bootylicious. Bootylicious, yeah, the act, that's the academic term. And uh, so I thought, okay, this brings to mind the possible comedic scene worthy of those 
saucy British postcards that you might not be familiar yeah. with, but they used to have saucy British postcards uh, that were actually made back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Orwell wrote an essay about them, and we always we grew up with them too. And I thought, well, it, it won't have a you know too yeah. racy, but definitely the sausage is a prominently displayed in the shop. Yeah, and if you're worried that I put untoward ideas in your head, I can say they were put there in mind by James Joyce's yes. description of. So check that out. Again, it's at bloomsandbarnacles.com. And leave us a comment. No, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we also want to remind our listeners, whether this is your first episode or your 39th, you know, if you like what you hear, feel free to donate. Uh, there's a little PayPal button on the upper right-hand side of our webpage. We really do appreciate anyone who can help us out in that way. And if you don't feel like dropping a coin in there, just uh, tell a friend who you think would like this. It's a great way to help us build our audience. And we do have a couple shout-outs this week to some of our donors. Uh, Owen Ahern, again, thank you, Owen. And Alan M. Mahan, I hope I'm getting the inflection right. Uh, also, thank you very much. And I believe his YouTube channel is... Yeah, this is, this is a message he left us with his uh, donation, so we wanted to read it. Okay, so it's hashtag Ulysses2020 on YouTube. Yep, check that out. I think that will bring you to his YouTube page. Let's move into the passage because there is a ton of information in this one. And yeah, we want to make sure we get it all to you. So this is from Proteus, uh, Ulysses' third episode. And you will find this on pages 40 to 41, at least in my edition, which is the Vintage International Edition. Dermot's going to read this passage. We're going to hear Dermot uh, speaking French. en français. Mm -hmm. Voila. Here we go. The grainy sand had gone from under his feet. His boots trod again a damp, crackling mast, razor shells, squeaking pebbles that on the unnumbered pebbles beats, wood sieved by the shipworm, lost armada. On wholesome sand flats waited to suck his treading soles, breathing upward sewage breath, a pocket of seaweed smoldered in sea fire under a midden of man's ashes. He coasted them walking warily. A porter bottle stood up, Stogged to its waist in the cakey sando, a sentinel, isle of dreadful thirst, broken hoops on the shore, at the land a maze of dark cunning nets, further away chalk scrawled back doors, and on the higher beach a drying line with two crucified shirts, rings end, wigwams of brown steersmen and master mariners, human shells. He halted. I have passed the way to Aunt Sarah's. Am I not going there? Seems not no one about. He turned northeast and crossed the firmer sand toward the pigeon house. Qui vous a mis dans sa fiche position? C'est le pigeon, Joseph. Patrice, home on furlough, lapped warm milk with me in the Bar McMahon, son of the wild goose, Kevin Egan of Paris. My father's a bird. He lapped the sweet lay show with pink young tongue, plump bunny's face, lap lapin. He hopes to win in the Groulot. About the nature of women, he read in Michelet, but he must send me la vie de Jesus by Monsieur Leo Taxel, lent it to his friend. C'est tonant, vous savez, moi je suis socialiste, je ne crois pas en l'existence de Dieu, faut pas le dire à mon père. Il croit, mon père, oui, schluss, he laps. I think somebody like leaned on the French button at the end there. And oh, you just... might as well. I, we were saying before this, I'm going to end up sounding like the two French peasant farmers in the early Simpsons episode that were based mm -hmm. on the Jean de Florette characters. Mm -hmm. That's what. Yeah. All right. Uh, thoughts, Dermot? 
beautiful description of Ring's End. And last night I was on Google driving through it because you can't drive through anywhere you know, that easily these days. So it was incredible to compare that with this description uh, where he just casually walks up to Ring's End. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you try, try anybody out there, just go to Google, uh, look it up and try driving through it. And it's like the, the mm -hmm. big the two gigantic towers that we're all familiar with if you've spent any time in Dublin the pool bag facility, mm -hmm. and there's the, 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 the gigantic, whatever the hell that is, big silver block building, and it bears no resemblance whatsoever. The pigeon house is still there, mm -hmm. but trying to correlate that with this description is absolutely mind-boggling mm -hmm. because it's so different. And a lot of the areas are fenced off. ESB, the electricity board, they've got like, in, you know, a whole areas that are just behind fences and gates there. So uh, it's, it's really, really striking. I don't think Joyce would recognize it if he came back. No, not at all. Any other thoughts on this section? We're going to get into a lot of that stuff in the... Mm -hmm. Well, we've talked before about Kevin Egan, and I know we, we, you know, Taxel's an interesting character as well. We'll talk more about him. So is this where he says, as uh, Je suis socialist, that he, is this Joyce saying he's a socialist? That is uh, Patrice, yeah. He's saying, oh, I'm a socialist. I don't, ah, well, okay. I don't believe in the existence of God. Um, this is a lot more about James Joyce in the form of Stephen Dedalus learning uh, a proper blasphemy as uh, contrasted with the ungentlemanly blasphemy of Buck Mulligan slash Oliver St. John Gogarty he encountered mm. in Telemachus. Right. So it's, I think it's, me it's meant to be uh, a contrast with that. It's right. a lot more about the blasphemy than the socialism. Oh, uh, other thing too, um, when I was back there last year, there was uh, a spill of sewage. In Dublin. In Dublin. And we were, I was on the bus going up and the couple in the seat in front of me were saying, they were looking at this black layer of crud on the beach on Sandy Mount. And the girl in the seat ahead said, look at that. Bunch of shite. It's disgusting. And I thought, mm -hmm. yeah, she wasn't wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, but it, it was a, a bug in the year 2019, but a feature in the year 1904. So. I don't know if I'd call it a feature so much as just a fact. Yeah. 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 I, I don't think they were like, yeah, we got this <laughs> really sewage covered stretch. Of Good land. work, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Throwing all your trash in the river. Yeah. OK, let's uh, look at some of these sections. The first part here, uh, a lot of this is just kind of Stephen again coming back to reality after some of his thoughts about William of Ockham and mm -hmm. Eucharist and these other things we've been talking about. The grainy sand had gone from under his feet. His boots trod again a damp, crackling mast, razor shells, squeaking pebbles that on the unnumbered pebbles beats wood sieved by the shipworm lost armada. So part of that's a, a bit of a reference to King Lear, but I really want to talk about that lost armada real quick. What, what's up with the armada, Dermot? Um, yeah, they got some bad weather. And Whose armada is this? <laughs> the Spanish armada. Uh-huh, they, they ran into some bad weather. Yeah, one of the useless Spanish kings thought he was going to conquer England and Queen Elizabeth and turn them back into good Catholics. And they, uh, everything that could have gone wrong pretty much went wrong. And uh, they ended up being blown well off course. Mm -hmm. A lot of them went around Scotland and looped over the, you know, north coast of Ireland down the west. Some of them foundered on the west coast of Ireland. So ended up all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so Stephen seeing there's lots of kind of crud and flotsam, jetsam, what have you, washing up on the shore here. And I think mm -hmm. he's seeing bits of wood that he's he's stepping over and he's imagining his little pieces of the Spanish Armada, the Spanish Armada washing up. 
next bit here. Unwholesome sand flats waited to suck his treading soles, breathing upward sewage breath. A pocket of seaweed smoldered in sea fire, which is like a phosphorescence, under a midden of man's ashes. He coasted them, walking warily. A porter bottle stood up, stogged to its waist in the cakey sand dough. A sentinel, isle of dreadful thirst. It's an empty bottle stranded on the beach. Broken hoops on the shore, at the land a maze of dark cunning nets. Farther away, chalk scrawled back doors, and on the higher beach, a drying line with two crucified shirts. Love the imagery here. Uh, rings end, wigwams of brown steersmen and master mariners, human shells. Kind of call back to that emptiness of shells um, that was kind of first brought up in Nestor. Mm -hmm. What he's describing is the filth of the River Liffey. So if you're not familiar with the layout of Dublin, there are several rivers in Dublin city. And the main one is the Liffey. And it rings in and this part of Sandy Mountain, the Pigeon House, are very close to the mouth of the Liffey. And like all great urban rivers, the people who lived around it spent centuries polluting it with their filth. And all that sludge has to go somewhere. And this is kind of where it empties out. So when he's the, when he's describing unwholesome sand flats and breathing upward sewage breath, um, I've seen interpretation of this where people are saying like clams and other sand-dwelling creatures will extend little breathing arms out. No, it's, it's literal sewage. He is stepping through filth because that's where it all ends up. And uh, it was actually, I think, in this time period that more um, sewage maintenance was starting to be introduced into Dublin. But in 1904, it would have been pretty foul uh, to walk along this, especially when the tide is out mm. and it's it's just the sand. There's no water to dilute um, all that filth. My hometown has the same problem right now. Mm. Today, in 2020, yeah. they still don't have a sewage plant. And the, 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 our river mouth is filthy with untreated sewage raw goes right out into the river and see chicago had the same problem they built a canal called the sanitary and ship canal that was roughly the same size and depth as the chicago river that mm. caused it to flow backwards and not just send all the sewage out into lake michigan where we we're getting our drinking water from oh. and the cholera rate in the city of chicago in that year dropped by 90 percent what year was that again oh 18 okay. mid 19th okay. century it turns out when you're not just drinking feces you don't get cholera as easily <laughs> yeah it's crazy but you know uh we're cunning engineers in chicago yeah, so at the land, a maze of dark, cunning nets. So as gross as the pollution on the shore is, um, Stephen is thinking this is this is where he can have freedom. The repressive culture of Dublin would restrict Stephen more here if, if he were to go back and take part in it rather than be this kind of willing exile out here on this disgusting, sandy area. Right. And he says way back in Portrait, you want to read that quote? Yep. When the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. So we see that kind of net imagery being yeah, repeated yeah, here. Yeah. So he's saying, yeah, I'm out here in, uh, I, I think I my notes I wrote, in this, this putrid playground, which mm -hmm. seems a bit much now I'm, I see it in the light of day. But he's better off there than in polite society because mm -hmm. he, he's, he's free to think his own thoughts here. Uh, there's a little mention here of chalk scrawled back doors, and this is a, a reference to a tradition that many Christians um, partake in on the Epiphany, which is 
January 6th. It's also the, the day the short story of the dead takes place, but theologically it's the day that the three magi or three wise men visited baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And he wrote in the paragraph we read before this about his, uh, his kind of embarrassment over some of his youthful writing schemes. You want to read that quote? Remember your epiphanies written on green oval leaves, deeply deep, copies to be sent if you die to all the great libraries of the world, including Alexandria. So I think he's he's connecting this epiphany to the epiphany he has in the next short paragraph. So chalk scroll back doors. So the tradition of chalking the door if for this year's epiphany, we're recording this in 2020, you would see something like 20 cross C cross M cross B cross 20. So you get the calendar year bookended 2020. And then the CMB either stands for Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar, who are the three magi. So their names traditionally, or the phrase Christus Mansionum Benedicat, which means may Christ bless this house. Mm -hmm. I'll try to find a picture of that and put it in the episode notes. It's just, it's something, I've seen it referenced on a lot of Catholic sites. I've also seen um, Anglicans and Episcopalians doing it. it. It doesn't seem to be any one denomination. Right. This epiphany reference, more subtle than the using the word epiphany, leads to the next epiphany that he has here. He halted. I have passed the way to Aunt Sarah's. Am I not going there? Seems not. No one about. He turned northeast and crossed the firmer sand toward the pigeon house. Right. So do you remember um, Aunt Sarah and, uh, and Uncle Richie? Yeah, he, ha he imagined them with their feeble kids and thought... Mm, Cousin Walter. Yes. Yeah, and he, he uh, kind of passively decides, oh, I can't go there now. Mm. So again, I think his uh, epiphany here is, I am better off out here right. even than I, I would be. Having the head blown off by the wind, yeah. Or, yeah, it, walking in sewage rather than being caught in the kind of shabby middle-class splendor of right. Uncle Richie and Aunt Sarah. He's gone too far, oh well, but he uh, turns toward the Pigeon House. Again, the Pigeon House in 19... is, a, is an old building... I don't know that it's being used anymore. I think they're turning it into a hotel now. Is that what we were I reading? I think originally it was started as a hotel okay. to serve sailors because there uh, were a lot okay. of trade and goods came in yeah. and out. And Mr. Pigeon, whatever his name was, he, he um, had the, the brilliant idea of selling food and coffee and whatnot to the, mm -hmm. you know, the tired workers. And so I looked this up because I have a memory and my memory might be playing tricks on me, but there was an animation studio that was out at Ring's End. Mm -hmm. Uh, back in the early 90s and we drove out there to work and I don't know if it was uh, the building was quite nice mm -hmm. and somebody told me it had been used at one point by the British Navy and Captain Cook had an office there now I, I have no idea if that was BS at the time or if it, if it was that nicer part of the pigeon house because I've seen the pigeon house and it's in an empty industrial building yeah it's next right? to the pool bag towers yeah now. yeah yeah but we, we were very near that so I don't know what the hell my memory is referring to and if anybody can help with that i would be very happy to to find out but the, i remember the interior of that building we were inside and it was quite nice it was you know a fairly decent building so was it torn down is it still there was it the pigeon house the the hotel area or was it something else but i was like i said i was driving to there on google last night and i just couldn't find the exact mm. thing i've been on, on image searches can't find it and um maybe i imagined the whole thing well if any of our listeners know please uh Get in touch. Mm. Um, the Pigeon House in 1904 had been supplying to electricity to Dublin for about a year. 
So what Stephen's seeing is a, an electrical plant, I guess you would call it. Yes, it would have been an industrial yeah. facility at that time. Yeah. yeah. So let's move into this next part because he thinks pigeon house and then he thinks this line. Qui vous a mis dans cette fichue position? C'est le pigeon Joseph. This is a quote from the book La Vie de Jesus by uh, Leo Taxil. I'm just going to call him Leo Taxil because it's easier for me to say. So this is a book you've probably never heard of. We're going to tell you a little bit about Mr. Taxil today because uh, his story is really cool. But let's take a look at this foreign language since, as I mentioned, philology is our, is our uh, um, art, one of our directive themes. So this is French for... Who has put you in this wretched condition? It, it's the pigeon, Joseph. The word fichu was new to me. Don Gifford translated that as wretched. If you look in uh, La Russe, which is the dictionary you have if you ever take a French class, they translate it as nasty. And Google Translate uh, top five translations were damn, blasted, goddamn, darn, <laughs> and wretched. Not good. So I think it's a little stronger than wretched, but like... So Joseph is, is Jesus' father here, and he's looking at his virgin wife who is pregnant, and he's saying, what happened to you? Well, how, how could you end up like this? And she said, oh, it was a, it was a the dove. It was a pigeon. Mm. We'll come back to that. So Patrice, home on furlough, lapped warm milk with me in the bar McMahon. Son of the wild goose, Kevin Egan of Paris. My father's a bird. He lapped the sweet lay show with pink young tongue, plump bunny's face. Lap Lapin. He hopes to win in the Gros Lot, which is like the lottery. About the nature of women, he read in Michelet, but he must send me La Vie de Jesus by Monsieur Leo Taxil, uh, lent it to his friend. So Patrice, this is Patrice Egan. He is son of Kevin Egan. Um, as it says here, Kevin Egan is an exiled Fenian that Stephen knew in Paris. Real quick, what's a Fenian? Uh, they were an Irish nationalist uh, group mm -hmm. in the late 19, mid to late 19th century. They were fighting the British. Yeah. Precursors of the 1916 lot, the IRA and the IRB and all that. Yeah. And we talked about them in an episode called Croppies Lie Down. Mm -hmm. So check that out. Uh, as we said, Patrice is his son. Obviously, Patrice is the French version of Patrick. Because Kevin Egan is exiled in France, his son is growing up there. And he works as a soldier in the French, ar French army. Hence, he's on furlough. Uh, and he's sort of assimilated to France. So whenever he speaks, he speaks in French rather than English, which his father speaks. Wild goose. Have you heard this term before? Wild oh, goose. yeah, yeah. They were the uh, Irish aristocracy who had, I think it was the late 1600s, they had their last great rising against the British, mm -hmm. uh, lost narrowly. And uh, they all fecked off to continental Europe saying, don't worry, lads, we'll be back. We'll be mm -hmm. back. And uh, yeah, we'll be back. And then they sailed off and they never came back. Yeah, they were uh, supporters of the Stuarts who fled after the Battle of the Boyne. Mm. So there is sort of these upper class exiles. No, I'm probably being unfair. I'm sure, I'm sure the some of them, yeah. you know, were probably always working to get back and maybe mm -hmm. conspiring with Bonnie Prince Charlie later on yeah. or whatever. Like, you know, their descendants or whatever. But, I, you know. Basically, the entire like upper strata of Irish mm -hmm. society just go. In the 19th and 20th century, they kind of reappropriated this term and used it for a lot of these political radical, politi Irish political radicals like Fenians and other nationalists um, who had gotten into trouble with the British government, and they were not quite as wealthy and well regarded. 
and the Bar McMahon. I was trying to figure out if it's still in Paris or not, and there is a place called McMahon. Uh, I could not figure out if it was the same one or how long they've been open, but it's very close to the Arc de Triomphe. But in, in this case, it's named after the descendant of the wild geese, uh, who's a man named Patrice de McMahon, and he was the Duke of Magenta. He did a lot of things. Mostly, there's a Duke of Magenta. That's cool. And I, I like that title. All right, so let's talk some other things we know about Patrice Egan. He likes his Les show, which, if you speak a little French, means warm milk. So you get this impression of this uh, sort of Francified son of an Irish exile who is sitting in a bar with Stephen drinking warm milk. Mm -hmm. I would say this is probably not literal milk, but I think he's what he's drinking is probably absinthe. Uh -huh. If you're not familiar with absinthe, we're going to be talking about it a lot in an upcoming episode. So um, I'll say this. It's a green beverage. It was very popular in France, France at this time with both Stephen Dedalus and James Joyce and lots of artists. But absinthe is traditionally served with drops of cold, pure, purified water and sugar. And adding that makes it become milky. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what they're talking okay. about is uh, um, Le Chaudis. His, his milk is actually absinthe. Do you know why absinthe became popular? Because uh, it was dirt cheap. No. There High was, proof. There was a blight. Blight began hitting all the vineyards, killing all the, the mm. vines. And they thought that it was going to completely destroy wine forever. And then a Texan grafted Texan rootstock into the French uh, vines and saved them. So mm -hmm. short little footnote. Just, just in case anyone's curious where this wretched drink came from. I love absinthe, so... Mm. I uh, drank it straight once when I used to drink. And, ugh, you're not supposed was, to drink it straight. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, it's like drinking jet fuel if you yeah. drink it straight. That's yeah. why they have the whole little preparation there. Yes, yes. He mentions Michelet, that this, you know, it would seem like a writer or a book yeah. that uh, helped him learn about women. Oh. So this is uh, Jules Michelet, who is a French historian. He wrote a book called La Femme, which means woman where he laid out all of his uh, theories about how great women are. Are these good theories that I can use uh, to they... profit? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, in Don Gifford's annotation, he has some quotes from this book, and I want to read it, and you can tell me what you think. <laughs> it, I, yeah. Woman is a religion, and her function is to harmonize religion. That's from page 78. Just as her evident vocation is love, and her indispensable gracefulness is a reflection of love on a groundwork of purity, properly cultivated by man in the light of this idea, ideal, woman will become superior to him to the point where he is strong, but she is divine, practical and spiritual, a liar of ampler range, and that's L-Y-R-E, of ampler range than man, and yet not strong. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds like gibberish. So it sounds like you will learn very little about women, about yeah. how effing holy they are. But yeah, well. pickup art of science hadn't been invented yet. Had it. <laughs> it's the dark yeah, ages. it would be many decades before mystery would be born. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on from that. Ugh. All right, so there's this phrase that pops up in here too. My father's a bird. You might recognize that as a callback to the Ballad of Joking Jesus, which was Buck Mulligan's rude little poem that he was reciting in Telemachus to Haynes and Stephen. And this is kind of contrasting here Mulligan as an improper blasphemer. 
uh, with Egan, who is a sort of intellectual blasphemer. He's showing Stephen how to do blasphemy right. Mm -hmm. Right? He's read all these these edgy, cool books. Um, Mulligan's just running around saying rude stuff. Uh, so if you don't remember the quote from Ballad of Joking Jesus, so we can get this uh, juxtaposed here, it is... And the queerest young fellow that you ever heard. My mother's a Jew, my father's a bird. And we're contrasting that with C'est le pigeon Joseph. So again, that's a line from La, La Vie de Jesus, uh, which is a parody of the life of Christ written by uh, Leo Taxel. It's a joke about Mary's quote-unquote infidelity. I, I think the joke here is that Mary is, is a virgin and she's suddenly pregnant and is explaining to her credul credulous husband, Joseph, who, I mean, we, we would probably assume if your wife is pregnant and you didn't have sex with her, somebody else did it. So Joseph is, is kind of humiliated and cuckolded here. But when he says, like, what happened? How did you get pregnant? She's like, oh, it was a pigeon. The Holy Spirit. Yeah, right. A pigeon a or a dove yeah. is a, I think dove and pigeon are both pigeon in mm -hmm. French. But uh, it's a traditional symbol of the Holy Spirit. But when you think about it that way, like, it does seem kind of crazy. Like, oh, yeah, this dove came down and put a baby in me. St. Joseph was right. a figure of some ridicule during the medieval period, too, though. Oh, really? He was seen as somebody who had had a joke played on him, yeah. Interesting. A a, as a cuckoo, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. To God. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I think uh, Taxel's thinking of a more worldly... Yes. It was the baker, and she made up a really nice story. Yeah. yeah. I want to use the rest of our time here today to talk about Leo Taxel. I think his story is probably one of the most interesting stories you've never heard. He he would have been well known at the time Joyce was in Paris, but he's really not known. And Taxel is Leo Taxel is his uh, pen name. His I can't remember his full name, but if you look up Leo Taxel, you'll find what you want to find. It's really easy to see why Joyce would have related to him as a writer. Uh, when Taxel was young, he had a, a top quality Jesuit education. He was very religious and then lost his faith very young. He had a certain comedic flair for blasphemy and took aim as he got older at sort of grand targets. And he was really not afraid to bend the truth to make fools of the people he wanted to make fools of. Uh, so he, he became a journalist and he was kind of, he was known as a, a yellow journalist or sort of an unreliable journalist, which he wore as a sort of badge of honor and referred to himself as the quote arch liar of the period. So he he was all he was all in. He got into tr some trouble because he wrote a lot of anti-clerical and porn pornographic novels. And it's not like a lady showed her ankle, it's pornographic. It, they were actually pornographic. So the titles here are great. The Secret Loves of Pope Pius IX. No, you got to read these in an English accent. Okay, go for it. The Secret Loves of Pope Pius IX. <laughs> the Holy Pornographers. Confession and Confessors. And the Pope's Mistresses. The middle, the Holy Pornographers, Confession and Confessors, I like because I can see it scrawled across a, a VHS cover. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> cheesy early, late 80s, early 90s. And they were extremely, I mean, they're what you think they are. They, they, were, they were properly dirty. And it, turned, it ended up with him accused of libel, I think particularly for the Pope Pius one. Mm. Um, he also enjoyed some religious parody. La Vie de Jesus would be a good example of that. I, I have the cover art for it. 
on our um, episode notes, and um, yeah, you can you can check that out. His goal in writing this this comedic novel or parodic novel, I guess you call it, was to demythologize the life of Christ. He really didn't believe he was quite atheistic, and he really wanted to take kind of that mythological wonder away from from Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And one way he did that was portraying Joseph, his father, as a cuckolded dupe. Mm-hmm rather than uh, a really lucky foster dad. So all of this kind of pissed the church off. And so doing a pretty hard 180 in the 1880s, he um, moved beyond that pornographic pope period and reconverted to Catholicism and became very, very pious. And during this time, he published a four-volume history of Freemasonry in which he wrote extensively about uh, the various satanic and occult practices of the Freemasons, a lot of which involve reverence to the figure Baphomet, um, who's been, I think, embraced a lot by modern-day Satanists, and at that time was kind of known in France because there was a particular image of Baphomet that graced the cover of Eliphas Levy's book whose name I can't remember right oh, now. Yeah, yeah. But it was like a the first like modern classic of uh, occult and magical studies. How would you describe Baphomet? Baphomet, or visually? Yeah. Uh, big horns. He's the classical, when people think to draw the devil with the goat and the horns and yeah. everything, this is, this is it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, Baphomet is meant to be an androgynous figure mm-hmm. um, and usually with one hand pointing up and the other down and written on his... Uh, their arms is solve et coagula. Right, which right. is alchemical, yeah. dissolve and coagulate. Um, right, so it, it looks, it, it's a, a goat-headed hum, human figure with human breasts. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird image. Yeah. And it's something that most people, I think, would associate with Satanism. In large part, not because of Eliphas Levy, but because of Leo Taxel. Mm. Like, if, you, if you've seen that image, like... He definitely worked to popularize it as something scary. So he joined forces with this guy then named Dr. Carl Hacks to write a book by the title of Devil in the 19th Century. So from going on, departing from, well, not departing from, but building on this this idea of the Freemasons as a bunch of demon and devil worshippers, he told this story that he, I think, Hacks and this woman named Diana Vaughn wrote about being involved with the Freemasons. Diana Vaughn is, she dictated the story and her story sort of breathlessly recounted her tale of being a member in a Freemason group, I believe in South Carolina, that was kind of like a breakaway set called the Palladian Order. And the Palladians practice all kinds of shocking satanic occult practices like orgies and bloodletting and eating babies, all your classic satanic panic shit these were your og satanic panic death cult lots of devil worship and diana just kept getting deeper and deeper into this she did all kinds of of crazy stuff amongst other things she became uh betrothed to the demon asmodeus who at one point took her 
and flew her to Mars. Yeah, the flight of Asmodeus, that yeah. was a demonic thing. From can, can you explain the flight of Asmodeus? Asmodeus is this demon who would take <laughs> you on a flight and suck you up into the air and you'd be able to see inside the houses and homes of your neighbors. Yeah. It's uh, it's always reminding me of if you've ever read the short story Flatland. Yes. Uh, it's yes, it's like that, but with a demon. Yeah. Um, so by 1897, the church had begun to grow impatient with Taxel because he, he kept rolling out more and more stories from Diana Vaughn, each more lurid than the last. And yet he did not seem to ever produce Diana Vaughn. And this went over. This went on for over a decade. It wasn't like six months. It was a long time. I think like 11 or 12 years. And there were so many wild stories about this Palladian order and all this wild stuff. But no Diana. So he's like, fair enough, guys. He calls a press conference. He rents a large hall in Paris and asks all these important people to come, church people, journalists, all these people. And he, here's a little note, asks everyone to check their umbrellas and walking sticks at the door. Why? So they all sit down, the curtain parts. Taxel walks out on stage and reads a confession he wrote where he says, I made up every word of this. Diana Vaughn is the name of my typist. Carl Hacks, not only an actual hack, but he's me. <laughs> Carl Hacks is Leo Taxel. And he's like, I just, I'm, he, I'm a writer. I made up every word of it. All the stuff about Freemasonry, totally made up. Uh, all this, the Palladian order is totally made up. None of it's real. Gotcha. And he said to them that the church and the press made it so easy for him because they just gobbled up every detail. He could tell them anything mm -hmm. and they, they would print it. And so he just kept rolling with it. Like I said, for over a decade, they were so eager to believe that um, not only had Taxel found Jesus, but that the Freemasons were these like blood guzzling baby killers yeah. that they wanted to believe that so bad um, that they were willing dupes who just, you know, took everything he said. Right. And and really, uh, you have to say, this is worse than the guy who believed a pigeon impregnated his wife as far as, like, yeah. high-profile fools goes. Mm -hmm. All of these rich and powerful men were done in by their own kind of petty bigotries. They were more willing to believe that a w living woman had traveled to Mars at the behest of a demon to whom she was betrothed than to just believe that a famous liar had been lying to them all along. Yeah. Pandemonium, Leo Taxel exits stage left and like goes and has dinner up the, the road. So what yeah. was the deal with like leaving the umbrellas and walking sticks at the door? Was <laughs> he, he was afraid, afraid they were going to attack throw, him? Yeah. They were going to like beat him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So though Taxel's name is kind of faded from history, his the legacy of his hoax um, lasts to this day. Mm. So like... We're talking about like the satanic panic in the 80s. Like yeah, definitely yeah. The, the the flavor and the, like that, that kind of mass hysteria, I think, has always existed in the forms of like, you know, like dancing plagues and um, witch trials. And it's yeah. like everybody wants to believe that the devil's out there messing their stuff up. If you can remember the satanic panic in the 80s, I think it's one of the more recent ones. But there are various evangelical Christians now in the 21st 20th and 21st century who still oppose Freemasonry as a satanic cult rather than like, I don't know, like a kind of a bunch of paunchy old guys who yeah. like play cards at yeah. the Masonic Lodge. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what I think it is. Freemasonry in Britain was more sinister because so many police officers were Masons mm -hmm. that it, be it became open to corruption. 
you yeah. had to be a mason to get promoted or oh, if you did something where your brothers yeah. would, would line up behind you and if you're a woman you couldn't join so there were all these problematic elements and to i think it. too like i always learned growing up like the freemasons were bad not because they were de devil worships de devil worshipers but because they hated catholics mm. like they discriminated against catholics yeah they do discriminate against women like women can't be freemasons now or then which like so saying diana vaughn was a freemason is absurd yeah. on its face that was a, his gift that was his way of of asking to believe this is ask me mm -hmm. a question about that yeah yeah doubt it. and yeah. they never did they just took it yeah but i don't think the freemasons are necessarily satanic mm. at all like no I, but I they, they they could be hermetic you know they they yeah. may well have for lots of francis yates just writing well, about the, i know the golden dawn like their system of like levels yes. and all that was taken from the freemasons yeah but I think free, if the Freemasons are occult at all, they're like very, very... Very low grade, yeah. yeah. Anyway, there are these sort of major evangelical, I guess, media figures, such as Pat Robertson or Jack Chick, who <laughs> have used details invented by Taxel in their literature to denounce Freemasons. Mm -hmm. There's a, a Jack Chick tract in particular <laughs> that uses that image of Baphomet to, yeah. to show that, like joining the Freemasons ruined this family through Satanism. Right. And it's all made up. And the, the guy who made it will put um, in our episode notes a link to his confession. Mm -hmm. I think I have an English translation of it. He says, I made up every word. None of this is true. It's pure fiction. But people are still quoting it 100 years later. Right. The Catholic Church, for its part, moved on very, very quickly. I think it was hugely embarrassing for them. Yep. If you read the Catholic Encyclopedia online, there's a very long entry that's just called Imposters. We'll link that as well, where Taxel is on the list. And he is described as one of the most <laughs> blasphemous and obscene of the anti-clerical writers in France. And the competition for that would have been pretty good. Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty, pretty good. Staunch. <laughs> so that's the story of Leo Taxel. There's another chapter that, that we'll, we'll uh, come back to in a couple of weeks. If you want to read ahead, mm -hmm. there's a post on our blog called The Vita Leo Taxel mm -hmm. that tells kind of his fight against anti-Semitism as well. So if you think he's just kind of a cheeky bastard, like he really, he, like he fought the good fight in some ways too so he's uh yeah he's a pretty cool guy and um we should mention maybe the documentary hail satan <laughs> oh yeah if you want to know more about modern <laughs> satanism and the use of baphomet now to kind of mess with uh people who want to put 10 commandments on government property uh -huh. yeah um you might recognize baphomet from mm. that and i think the modern iteration of satanism they're basically um, yeah. atheist kids who mm -hmm. like to prank evangelical yeah. Christians in the most sharp pointed way as possible. Yeah. I think Taxel would have recognized exactly what they're up to, what they're mm -hmm. doing. They're not actual Satanists at all. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so if you haven't seen Hail Satan, it has a question mark at the end. It's, uh, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and they make a really good statue. They made a great Baphomet. And their Baphomet, though, doesn't have a female torso because they mm -hmm. said that uh -huh. it would have made it too hard to get actually posted anywhere. Right. But it is modeled on the torso of Iggy Pop. Oh, <laughs> Which makes I made me happy. So it's a, he's a very uh, muscular uh, uh, torso. But yeah, it's a, the same image of Baphomet uh, from the cover of that book and from the cover of Taxel's book, um, Levy's book, and Taxel's book. Except there are two little children at his, uh, at, his or at their feet, looking up at Baphomet uh, reverently. So it's. Quite, I think if you're an evangelical Christian, it's quite horrifying. Yeah, designed to horror. Or Catholic, like the yeah, Catholics yeah, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah, they went down were very well. upset by the the. Um, they should have known satanic they were being temple. Yeah. They should have relaxed. Leave this one to the. Well, I remember watching that and thinking like this is just a repeat of the yeah. same story. Like yeah. they're they're so easy to bait, and they, I, I want to say they shouldn't be, but maybe I, I mean, I don't know. Like they, they, 
It seems to be a pattern. Yeah. All right. This last little bit is all in French. C'est trop d'un, vous savez. It's hilarious, you know. Moi, je suis socialiste. Me, I'm a socialist. Je ne crois pas en l'existence de Dieu. I don't believe in the existence of God. Faut pas le dire à mon père. Don't tell my father. So this is uh, Patrice Egan talking to Stephen. Like, I'm, you know, he's kind of leftist politically. Mm-hmm. He uh, doesn't believe in God. And it's just like he's saying it's so hilarious. Like, you know, I'm so different from my father. And then Stephen says, il croit. He believes, like he believes in God. Ah, mon père, oui, yeah, my daddy believes in God. He's teaching Stephen to be kind of uh, blasphemous, but mm-hmm. he's like, I'll, I'll get you that taxo book. Mm-hmm. My friend's got it right now, but like, just don't don't tell my dad. Okay. I'll make him sad. Because as we learn later, like, and I think we mentioned already, Kevin Egan and, and Stephen know each other too. Then it says Schluss, which is German. It just means like the end or enough. There was uh, early on, th- there was... I think it's at the end of that intellectual modalities part where he says he's going to open his eyes and see if the world's still there, where he says pasta. Okay. Or pasta. I, don't, I hope I didn't say pasta, which is Italian for kind of the, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just like the end, enough. Okay. He laps. So again, uh, he, Kevin Egan, it seems like, has kind of a, a bunny rabbit face. And so he's saying he laps his milk like la pan, mm-hmm. like, which is a, a rabbit. Mm-hmm. And so he's lapping his uh, absinthe down again here. As he, he and Stephen have their intellectual discussion. That's that's the end. That's all the stories I have for today. Do you have anything you want to add to that? No, no, no that was this, this one's fun for me. Yeah. Um, I I really do feel Leo Taxel is not recognized enough. His story is really funny. It's one of those stories that somebody <laughs> should make a movie of if they yes. haven't already. Yes. Yeah, so if we have any filmmaker friends out there, and I know we do, like mm. this would be such a good subject. Like yeah. the moment's right for it for yeah, sure. Definitely. If we know any animators, it would be a great... God, don't look at me, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, you can let that bounce around your head tonight. It's it's hard to find a lot of sources on it because it's, it's like I said, it's just not well reported. We have some good ones that relate the, the details of the story in our show notes for this under the further reading section. So I recommend checking those out. Uh, we'll have links to all the other stuff. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. 
We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.